Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. From the gas pump to the grocery store. Inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Osiris. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this is episode 18 of the podcast. My guest today, a little later on, an incredibly talented young woman who does many things really, really well. Her music is phenomenal. Molly Tuttle will be with me shortly. And we talked about her amazing new EP of covers called But I'd Rather Be With You Too. And the vision and process behind that record, as well as her creative process in general. And we also talked about Molly's journey with an autoimmune disorder that she has called alopecia. How she's connected with the community of people who also have alopecia. How it's come in and out of her career and her life and it's really really interesting inspiring stuff so stick around for that inside the musician's brain is brought to you by osiris media osiris has a great new podcast called alive again that just hit the airwaves and it is a history of trey's career outside of fish and it's really really cool off to a great start we are also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the String Duster's new record label, which I'll be telling you more about here in just a sec. And we're brought to you by our amazing sponsor this season, EMG Pickups, makers of 
all different types of quality pickups, mostly for electric guitar. But if you've been listening to the pod this season, you've heard me singing the praises of their banjo pickup, the ACB Barrel, which I've been using for years. And if you're a banjo player, you know it's not an easy instrument to amplify. They've done a great job with this pickup. It's reliable, it's easy to install, and most importantly, it sounds great. EMG stuff is all made in the USA, family owned and operated since the 70s. If you have pickup needs, make sure to check out EMG. All right, I'm going to keep the intro kind of short and sweet this week and get right to this great interview with Molly Tuttle. And people have asked me as I've been doing the podcast, how I come up with the intro topics. And I usually kind of keep a running list of ideas, things that are interesting to me, new music, the creative process, or just any kind of helpful bits that I pick up along the way that are worth sharing. But we're sort of in the middle of a little break from touring right now, and I've been kind of taking a little break myself, and all that is to say that I don't have anything too huge or clever planned up for this intro. But I do think it's worth mentioning that it's important to take a break sometime and just let yourself slow down and release the expectations that you have of yourself or that other people have of you and recharge yourself, spend time with people that you love or doing things that you love, let that feed your soul. And that oftentimes will really prepare you to come back and find an even deeper groove of inspiration and creativity. It's been kind of crazy to see how quickly the music world has snapped back to life. And we've been playing shows for a few months now, and we really got right on it when it was possible to get out there and play shows again, which was great. But like I said, right now we've got this break. And so yeah, I'm I'm taking a little break myself. And, you know, one interesting thing about that is I think it's always important to remember in creative pursuits that your identity is not as wrapped up in how you sound or perform as you think. That's a trap that we can fall into. I know I definitely fall into it. But if if you sort of put your yourself, your own soul first and don't connect your identity to whatever it is you do, and you stay connected to yourself, take time for things and people that you love outside your profession or passion, and then let your creative output or whatever you do kind of flow out of feeling whole and fulfilled in other ways. That That's a strong move. That can lead to just, I think, a more settled feeling in general. And then ultimately, you know, you can express yourself more authentically in whatever you do, I think. So Long and short of it is good to take a break. At least that's that's what I tell myself before I blow things off and go into the mountains to go fishing. But it, it sure is good for me. And I love it. And I come back feeling renewed. So I did want to tell you really quickly, though, before we get to this interview, just a little bit about our new record label that we have started, the String Dusters have started with our management team. It's called Americana Vibes. I know you hear me mentioning at the top of the show because our team there is is helping me get the podcast out. And Americana Vibes, the vision, the idea is simple. It's just about helping musicians in and around our community to get their music out there to the world as much as they possibly can. People got to hear this great new music. 
you know, once upon a time, record labels were a really pivotal element of the music business, a really necessary piece for any artist trying to get on the radio distribution, you know, any, any way that you would get your music out there, it was a really necessary element for success. But the industry has shifted so significantly over the past 20 years or so, it's always shifting. But in the past 20 years, the way people record music, distribute, promote music, how fans consume it, how it generates revenue, and ultimately what role recorded music plays in your career have all shifted significantly as well. And so too have the role of record labels. And there are still are some of these bigger labels that operate on a large scale, put big money behind artists. But a lot of the industry has moved in more of a DIY direction and artists are still recording lots of music, maybe even more music because recording has become so accessible. But the pathway for that music to get out there to fans has really shifted significantly. And the options as far as the business partners that help you make that part of things happen are really more limited. And that's where Americana Vibes, our new label, comes in. All this music, all this new music from smaller but seriously talented artists, it really deserves a chance to get out there. And we have a great, experienced, and well-connected team that helps to make that happen and a sustainable model that works at that scale and benefits everyone involved. And and then, of course, there's this concept of a label or a brand that ties all this together, the idea that all this music comes from this amazing growing community of roots bands and musicians that the String Dusters have been a part of for years, for... 15, 16 years we've been out there doing it. And so many amazing bands are out there doing it to more right now than ever before. And that was a big part of the soul of a record label back in the day, like those mailers you'd get from Columbia, where you'd, you know, you'd order music just based on the fact that it was part of this record label without even knowing what it was. Or labels like Sub Pop, Stax, Blue Note, just all these badass brands that were, you knew it was cool because it was curated by this cool label that you trusted. And that's definitely one thing that we're hoping to bring to the equation in all of this. And as far as releases, we've got some Duster stuff coming out. If you haven't checked out our recent tribute to Bill Monroe, check it out. And we have lots of solo efforts coming out on Americana Vibes from my Solo record, Trans Banjo. Andy Hall has his amazing solo Dobro record. Got a really cool new record from Falco on the way. And we're also putting out the audio from the Travis book, Happy Hour. Travis's cool music variety show with lots of great guests. We're also starting to work with some artists in and around our community, including Midnight North. They have a new record coming out on Americana Vibes that is phenomenal. Put out the Sweet Lilies record, which is also terrific. And we're working with a great young band called Morsel, putting out a record that I produced that I think came out great. And we've got a lot of other plans in the works. So stay tuned to Americana Vibes. All right, let's jump ahead to my interview here with Molly Tuttle. What a badass. Really enjoyed sitting down and chatting with her. Here we go. God, I feel like hell tonight. The tears of rage, I cannot lie 
We're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and my guest today is an incredible artist who does many things really well and who I've enjoyed having the chance to collaborate some with here in the recent past and am definitely a fan of Molly Tuttle. Welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thanks for having me. And I'm also a fan of your music and I've loved every time we get to jam together. So thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I I was reminiscing with Andy recently about our Bluegrass Generals show at uh, Winter Wondergrass because we're we're putting together, you know, of course the Bluegrass Generals show last year was was canceled due to the pandemic, and now we're starting mm-hmm. to kind of get things rolling again, and we're we're looking at the next Generals lineup. But that was a great crew we had there at Winter Wondergrass. That was really really fun. Yeah, that was so much fun. I had a blast playing with you. It was great. So tell me what's what's going on, Molly. What how does uh how does the um, the near future look for you and, you know, live music, I think, is coming back a lot more quickly than a lot of us assumed that it would. And I just was curious to catch up with you and see how all that felt. Yeah, I've been touring a little bit and it definitely it kind of um, caught me by surprise at first. I was like, wow, I didn't know if um, a lot of the gigs would end up playing and was kind of thinking, well, midsummer, maybe fall, we'll get started again. But then um, I I think I played my first show again in late May and I've been touring a little bit. I did a week-long solo tour. I've been opening for Old Crow Medicine Show a bit too. So it's kind of, it's happened abruptly, but also I've been easing into things um, and haven't been going like full-on, full-time touring with a band. I've been doing some solo stuff here and there and then a bit of opening stuff as well. So it's been a fun way to get back into it. And what was the last year like? I know that you had a, a few really cool new projects come out, which we will certainly talk about here in a minute. But how did you how did you take on the extended pause from touring? Yeah, I think the extended pause was for me. um, I think the hardest part was being away from family and having all the anxiety and kind of grief around COVID. Um, And then it was it was nice in a way to get to stay put because I've just toured my whole adult life. Um, and I'm really deep down kind of a homebody. I don't, I like traveling, but it does wear me out a little bit. So in a way it was nice to just have time at home to really settle into Nashville. I've lived here six years and I barely had like furniture in my house when the <laughs> pandemic started. And so I was able to finally kind of like feel like I was putting down roots a little bit. Um, I wrote a lot of songs, recorded an album of covers, um, kind of started planning for, for my next couple records. And so it was a year of just um, kind of reassessing what I want to do moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a, a common story that I've heard from people. You know, suddenly we we all have a chance to, after having spent all these years on the road, we have a chance to actually have a life at home. And it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that affects people's careers moving forward and their desire mm-hmm. to tour, you know, I think it could, I think it could shake things up a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I think some bands might not tour again after this. I feel like some people 
even that I know are saying they're going to tour a lot less. So it'll be interesting to see who continues to go full on and who kind of takes a little more time away from touring. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about your progression as an artist because as I said in the intro, you're really unique. You do a lot of things really, really well. And you're this ripping guitar player, you know, and I know you were instrumentalist of the year at the 2018 Americana Awards, which Mm -hmm. that's a really, that's a big deal, you know? And I think, (laughs) I think a lot of people, especially maybe a little earlier on in your career knew you, you know, a lot for your guitar playing, but you're also Mm -hmm. an amazing singer, a great songwriter, and now just coming into your own as sort of an all around artist. And you clearly have this diverse set of influences from bluegrass. And I hear a lot of, you know, indie and rock and, you know, a lot of different things sort of sprinkled in there. Mm-hmm. How, how did all that progress? You know, it takes time to develop all those skills. And I'm sort of curious, you know, what pieces came earlier on and how did it ultimately kind of all fit together to get you to where you're at now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think when I first started playing music, I just played guitar for a couple of years, and um, I was eight when I started playing guitar, and so that was my first instrument um, before I sang or played anything else. I was just learning fiddle tunes on guitar and learning chords, and then I started playing in local bands, um, and that's when I started singing more, and singing to me became more of a focus even than guitar. I think guitar came a bit more naturally to me because I'd started on it earlier, and um, spent more time playing it before I started singing, but, um, I felt like I could express myself more as a vocalist. And then the third piece was songwriting, which I started doing the latest when I was 15 or 16, I wrote my first real song. Um, and so those three things have been what I've focused on since then. And kind of through learning other people's songs and listening to a lot of different styles of music, um, I feel like I've incorporated a bunch of different influences into my music, but I started out just listening to like bluegrass and old time that my dad would play around the house. And I remember he'd have jam sessions when I was a really little kid before I even played. And um, I think going to bluegrass festivals was really, really influential and where I learned a lot. Um, And going to jam sessions was another way. I just feel like I progressed a lot once I started going to a lot of music events. Um, And so, yeah, I think, guitar and singing. When I went to Berkeley, I focused again on guitar. I kind of refocused on guitar because that was my principal instrument. And then I also was taking songwriting classes. Um, So I feel like that's really where I got my chops on guitar. I think I had technical abilities on guitar, but I didn't understand the fingerboard very well when I got to Berkeley. Um, And so I really took a couple years and um, just was really disciplined about practicing the guitar. And these days I feel like my focus is songwriting because I think um, that's the thing I need the most is just new songs to record. And so I don't, I'm not sitting around practicing guitar every day like I used to. I'm mainly writing. So as far as your influences, I think a lot of that is on full display with these with these two la- last two records you put out, But I'd Rather Be With You and But, I, but I'd Rather Be With You Too, which is the one that just came out this year. Really, really cool and varied set of influences there. Are those are those all your picks? Is that just kind of the, the stuff that you're into these days? 
Yeah, the first album especially, But I'd Rather Be With You, was songs that I went back to, um, just stuff that I've loved throughout my life, but kind of, I deliberately chose songs that people might not expect from me to kind of give my fans a window into other stuff I've listened to besides like Hazel Dickens and Bill Monroe and um, (laughs) the bluegrass side of what I do. Um, (laughs) So I found it more interesting to pick songs like by Rancid, like the Olympia Washington that I played in seventh grade with my like middle school friends or Mirrored Heart, which is a song that came out in 2019. And I just, it was one of my favorite songs of the year. And yeah. The production on, on your version of that is so, so tight. It's so cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It's all for the game. It's all for the lovers trying to chase the rush again. It's all for the game. It's all for the lovers trying to take the breath away. It's all for the That was a fun one to do. It was the last one I recorded and I just did kind of like locked myself in my room for a day and recorded the guitar and played around with some harmony parts, but that was a really fun one. So as far as the process goes, so Tony Berg, he produced both of these records, Mm -hmm. right? He's worked with Phoebe Bridgers, Andrew Bird. So how does the process work? I know you just mentioned like you're recording parts on your own in your home, but do you arrange stuff with him ahead of time and then sort of you know, do you do your parts like to a click at your place and then ship them out to him? Like, how does that process work? I was coming up with my own parts um, and then I would do them to a click. There were a couple that we didn't do to a click Um, for that first record, the 2021, which is the full album. And then I did the three extra songs this year. Um, But for the full album, I just recorded them at my house. So I was kind of calling the shots um, arrangement-wise and tempo-wise. And then if Tony had another idea, like I remember standing on the moon, I recorded it um, pretty much how the Grateful Dead do it chord-wise. And I sent it to Tony and he was like, hey, I have a reharm idea. And so cool. stuff like that, occasionally he's su- he'd suggest. But for the most part, I was coming up with the arrangements, recording them, sending them to him. And then he would um, choose other players to add their parts to it. And then he kind of like put all the parts together and chose which things to keep. And yeah. Well, it came together really well. It's so, it's, it's always fun to hear covers is it's an interesting topic. I know it has been for our band, you know, Mm -hmm. you want to strike out and make a name with people for your original stuff. You know, that's sort of like the core of being an artist. That's your original voice, Mm -hmm. your original statement, but Playing others' music can be a really playing other people's music can be a really satisfying piece, and it also it's it gives people a chance to, um, you know, to have a connection to the music without learning like all this new stuff. You know, it almost like mm-hmm. opens a door. Yeah. Did, did is that? I was just wondering, you know, the vision of these records, and and sort of you know how you're trying to connect with people. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think so. It was really like a project that started because of the quarantine and I still wanted to be putting out music and connecting with fans. Um, But I felt really in between projects. I didn't have another original album ready to go um, and everything got put on hold when the shutdown started. 
Um, so I took a couple weeks just kind of thinking about things. I'd been talking to Tony Berg about making a record together, and we just kind of stayed in touch and um, decided it would be fun to try to work on something remotely, and then this cover album came out of that idea. So it was... It felt like a project to put out in between my originals to kind of show people a different side of what I do and um, maybe show them where I'm going with my next album, of my own songs as well. And I learned a lot in the process too, which I think impacted my writing and arranging. Now, what about the recording stuff, the studio stuff? Was that something that you were into before quarantine or was that a skill that you acquired, you know, once we had all this time to ourselves? Yeah, I'd done like a little bit of recording here and there, but I'd never used Pro Tools. So I had to download Pro Tools, figure out how to get that to work. Um, I didn't really, I had like one or two microphones that were decent quality, but um, I remember Tony suggested I just use an SM57 on my guitar, which is like what I, what you play into live, (laughs) like every random gig you've ever played. And so I used that for recording the guitar, which was fun. And I actually didn't own one, so I had to borrow one. And then I used the mic you're using, I think the SM7B. SM7, yeah. Is that what you're using? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I used just super basic mics that you see all the time for the guitars and vocals. And then I just learned really basic stuff on Pro Tools. So it was a bit of a learning curve, but the main work, I sent it to this engineer, Will, and he kind of... um put everything together and fix the levels. And if there was a lot of like RF noise in my house, I remember. So he was able to clean that up a little bit. So I kind of like learned basic pro tools, but nothing to write home about. I'm not really like an engineer now all of a sudden. But an SM57 (laughs) on the acoustic guitar, that's pretty punk rock. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Like Molly said a second ago, SM57, you know, every random bar that you ever go play in, that's the mic that's (laughs) there for the instruments or for the guitar cabinets. And I'm surprised to hear that because it sounds, it sounds amazing. It's incredible to see how many musicians have taken on the studio thing, you know, now a little bit more Mm -hmm. out of necessity, but how many, you know, I think it really will open a lot of doors for people because... This notion that every time we want to make a record, we need to get this big budget together, go into a recording studio and use, you know, hire people and use tools and skills that aren't a part of everyday life. That might, you know, be one of those things that starts to become a little bit antiquated as people realize how accessible recording stuff is. Do you think that will be a part of, you know, further projects for you moving forward? I mean, I really liked the process just because I had so much time to myself to play around with things and try different ways of singing and playing the songs. So I liked that quite a bit more than just having, it's always stressful when you have like five days in the studio or however many days and you're like, ah, I have to get this done. I find that that's not really, I don't always get the best performance when I do it that way. And there's definitely something to be said for having a full, if you're doing it with a full band, getting it live in the studio is so cool. Um, But for this project, it really worked for me to just have as much time as I needed to get my parts right and send a bunch of takes. And um, we weren't going for that live band feel. So I think I will incorporate this into future albums and just remember that how nice it was to have the time alone, too, without people like listening from a control room. So I really felt a lot more free to express 
different ways of singing and playing. Yeah, and you can tap into some levels of creativity, I think. What what you said is true. There's this Mm -hmm. dichotomy between what we try and do in the studio, which is capture the live sound of people playing together and interacting and bringing that magic of collaboration in the moment with other people. But there's a level of creativity I think in experimentation and kind of tapping a little bit more deeply into things that are inside of us when it's not so much about that moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I feel like there's two different ways or obviously more than two ways, but you can make a record and get that live spontaneous sound or you can really like craft individual parts. And um, one time I forget who it was. Someone was talking about those two ways of doing things and kind of said one like how the Beatles would kind of craft their individual parts and really layer things and take their time. And then on the other hand, Bob Dylan was always just getting stuff really live in the studio. Yeah, there's no right way to do it. I always reference Sgt. Pepper's, you know, when people say that every album's got to be live in the studio. And of course, you know, the Beatles only played live for six years and then here they come with Sgt. Pepper's and it's like the goal was to create something, not only that they couldn't recreate live, but that also really took advantage of the capabilities of the studio where there's a lot of unique creativity in Mm -hmm. there. And I hear that on on your stuff. It's cool. It's like, there, it digs a little bit deeper and there's some cool levels of creativity. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. So you have some really cool guests on, but I'd rather be with you too. The new one that just came out, you've got... Nathaniel Rateliff, right? Iron and Wine, Sam Beam, and then mm-hmm. Madison yeah. Cunningham. Are those, I was curious, are those relationships yeah. that already existed or are these new friend, new musical collaborators that you're just connecting with for the first time? Yeah, um, kind of a little bit of both. Maddie and I met right before the pandemic started. We were both on this cruise called the Kayamo Cruise. Have you ever yep. done that one? I haven't, we haven't done it, but I know of it. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's like a kind of Americana music cruise and she was playing and I remember looking at the lineup and I'm always like when I go to a festival, I'm like, okay, which bands do I want to like make sure I get a chance to see play live that I haven't seen before. And she was someone I've been a big fan of, but I hadn't seen her play. So we played a little bit together on that cruise and I watched all her sets and then she played in Nashville and we kind of just connected that week. Um, And so, yeah, thinking about these duets, she was someone I'd already played with and um, was friends with already. And so I asked her and it was like a no brainer to do a song together. Um, But Nathaniel and Sam, I I met Nathaniel really briefly as well in 2020, um, probably in January or February. We played a festival together and I think I just said hi to him backstage. Um, But I had never really hung out with him or anything. So we just kind of reached out um, to see if you'd be interested in doing it. And I think we've just kind of vaguely connected on social media and he agreed to do it, which was really exciting because I've been listening to his music a lot this last year. I love his records and Mm -hmm. his SNL performance earlier this year was so cool. And Sam kind of the same thing. I don't think I've ever met him, but I've seen him play and been a big fan of his as well this past year. So um, both of them were 
really generous and kind to do those tracks with me. Well, they came out great. And I, I really Thanks. love, yeah, I really love the direction. And I, and I said earlier, I really love the production. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about Tony Berg's involvement and just sort of from like a more zoomed out perspective. You know, I think it's hard for fans. They don't always understand what a producer can bring to a project or how a producer can influence the way that the music is created. And in every situation, it's very different. You know, artists all need something different and producers all have sort of a different flavor, different skills, different ways that they work. But in in, in this situation, you know, how, how would you describe his influence on the project and, you know, a, a sort of a little bit more deeply your guys' process of working together? Yeah, I think Tony, for one, he was really um, particular about what songs we chose. So I played him so many songs, so many of my favorite songs and songs that I've, some of them I'd covered before. And, um, but that was like the longest part of the process was just narrowing it down to these first 10 songs on the first album and then three songs for the duets project. Um, and yeah, he just was really, had a super high standard for the songs. He wanted to make sure they were all like great songs, had great lyrics and melodies and songs that I could bring like a new, um, kind of my own take too, so that I wasn't playing it exactly yeah. like the original. Um, so like, for instance, She's a Rainbow by the Rolling Stones is such a piano-based arrangement, but I played it on guitar and um, obviously like it had a male vocal and then just having it from a female perspective kind of added new something new to the song. So that's what we were going for with um, covering covering other people's songs was just stuff that was really unexpected. He kept saying like, I want to really surprise your audience with this album. Um, but at the same time, it had to be songs that felt true to me and the music that I actually listened to and, and enjoy. Um, and then as far as like production, um, like the sound of the records, he um, wanted to again, pair me with people who were kind of surprising combinations as well. And just put like, interesting sounds um, that people wouldn't expect. And especially, I think, with my guitar, um, him and his engineer, Will McClellan, were all, always adding, like, different effects and kind of EQing my guitars in, in different ways. So I was playing the same guitar on every track, but it sounds different from song to song, just the way that they um, played with the tone of the guitar cool. and added different effects to it. It was really cool, I thought. Yeah, that was really cool. And... Always, uh, it's always a little bit of a kind of leap of faith for us people who I think started out in bluegrass, where there's mm -hmm. such a premium placed on tone and capturing things in a really pristine setting. But yeah. but it sounds like you got outside the box, and that was that was part of what they brought to the project. That's cool. Yeah, I liked it because I don't know some of the other. I like that they didn't keep it super pristine sounding. And the whole, I mean, the fact that I was playing with a 57 and um, it already wasn't going to sound like the best guitar tone you've ever heard, but they kind of <laughs> leaned into it on some songs. It sounds like really trebly and kind of thin, like I'm almost playing with a really thin pick and other songs they put like kind of crunchy sounds on it. So I really liked that. Yeah. Well, it came out great. It sounds awesome. Thanks. And I, I would really recommend that you all check out Molly's last two records are just chock full of amazing. And I love when you're ready. You know, when we were getting ready to oh, do thanks. when we were getting ready to do the Bluegrass Generals show, 
I, mm-hmm. I always try to just listen to everyone's music and get in that vibe. And then we all end up sort of playing each other's songs, but there's so much great, great stuff on that record, which I think came out Thanks. in 2019. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, your, your latest sort of step forward as a songwriter. And I wanted to just chat about, you know, the songwriting process, which is such a, a unique thing to dig into. Every artist takes it on differently. And it sounded like you, are, are you working on a new batch of songs for, for your next record kind of currently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm working on a lot of, um, a lot of new originals. I think I kind of have like two albums in mind that I want to make um, this year and next year. And um, so, yeah, it's been exciting. I've been doing a lot of co-writing during the quarantine, like over Zoom, which has been fun. Um, one of the things I was struggling with is just having so much free time. It was hard to get myself to sit down and write. So having like a set time to write with someone else has been helpful um, and just a really good way to like learn about the craft of songwriting too, I think. Now, are you, are you always collecting songwriting, songwriting based ideas, or is this more something that, you know, you, you sit down and dig into in more focused periods of time, like say, as you're getting ready to make a record or, or is is the songwriting process kind of always ongoing for you? It definitely like ebbs and flows, but I think it's pretty much always ongoing. Like I'll come up with little ideas here and there, but certain times, especially when I have like a deadline of making a record or um, or a project that I'm working on, then I'll get a lot more into songwriting. It's kind of nice to have that external pressure sometimes. And then as far as the song, co- the co-writing sessions, mm-hmm. uh, it's another thing that people I think don't have a lot of insight into. Like give us an example of how one of these sessions goes down. You know, do you... Do you show up to the table with ideas? How fleshed out are those ideas? And then you sort of put that in the mm-hmm. other person's hands. Like, what what could that look like? Yeah, it really goes a lot of different ways. Sometimes um, I'll bring an idea. Sometimes I'll bring like a verse and a chorus or or just like two words, like a hook idea. Sometimes I'll just have a melody or a guitar riff or sometimes I won't have anything. Um, and then maybe the other person will have an idea too. I've had people bring like almost fully finished songs to a session. And that's like, in a way it's really cool, but also I'm like, well, you could have just finished this without me me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So it really ranges. And then sometimes neither person has an idea and you just talk for a while and like come up with a subject and then start writing from this from scratch. But um so there's no no real rules to it. I think it's nice if someone has a really strong idea to start with. And I think the most experienced writers that I've written with always have like certain ideas bouncing around. What usually comes first for you, music or lyrics? Um, I would say usually lyrics because I'll at least have some idea of what I want to write about. Um, but sometimes the music comes first and then I'll just kind of try to think of what it makes me feel like, but it's usually a lot easier if I have a lyric idea first. And, and is that something that's usually based on like, is the topic kind of first, you know what I mean? Like you're thinking about sort of this thing that's been on your mind or an emotion or whatever, or does Mm -hmm. a, a set of words that sort of has a life of its own kind of tumble out and lead the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think both, like a lot of, I found in Nashville, especially a lot of people start from hooks, like they'll have a couple words and just come up with a story from there. Um, Sometimes I have a specific like story or topic I want to write about, but 
Um, a lot of times it's just like a few words and then you go from there. Yeah. Well, you got it going on, girl. I love your songs and I can't wait to hear, I can't wait to (laughs) hear what, I can't wait to hear what's next. Can you, so you said you were working on two albums. Can you tell us any more or like when, when we might expect, (laughs) you know, to, to hear the Um, next chapter of Molly Tuttle? Yeah, I can't, not very much is set in stone yet. So I don't want to say too much, but I'm hoping maybe later this year, people will be able to hear something. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm going into the studio next month, which will be really fun. And then I'm hoping to go in again in the fall. Cool. Well, I look forward to, to seeing what's up. So I want to Thanks. shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about alopecia, which is mm-hmm. something that really makes you unique. And I would really urge you all to go to Molly's website and read the piece that you wrote on there about your journey with alopecia. And I, I, I don't want to say too much because I want, I want them to sort of hear it in your words. But just for mm-hmm. a tiny bit of context, Molly has an autoimmune disorder, which causes hair loss. And it started from when you were a really young child. And then you've had this journey of sort of acceptance and then, you know, getting away from it a little. And now you, you've sort of come full circle to where you're attending the, the conference, the, how do you say alopecia areata? Yeah. Yeah. Alopecia areata. Yeah. You're, you're attending their big national conference and you're, I've seen the stuff that you've posted on social media, but when I read this piece on your website, Mm -hmm. I was moved. It was really, honest and beautiful and a message I think that carries this bigger kind of universal um, meaning these days where we just need to do a better job of understanding each other and accepting each other and Mm -hmm. connecting with each other and realizing that, you know, all of these layered biases that are, you know, just the result of a lot of what we've seen as humans. Now it's our job to try and undo some of these things. And you're standing up in this really beautiful way for, for, you know, people who also have this autoimmune disorder. So I just was curious Mm -hmm. to hear a little bit more from you about it and sort of where you're at now with that journey and in some of the ways that you feel like the things that you've done and said have affected people's lives. Yeah, I think that's been like a really rewarding part of just having a platform is being able to talk about alopecia. And um, it was kind of like when I wrote that piece, it was, I guess it was after I'd been to that conference for the first time maybe. Mm -hmm. And I've always had this goal of like, being able to help other people accept their appearance or their differences um, by speaking out about alopecia. But what I didn't realize is I also needed to like help myself. I kept waiting for myself to accept it before I could help other people. But I, in a way, just had to jump in and start talking about it, even though I was still struggling with it a lot. And um, that helped me really feel acceptance about it was just being open about it with others. And I think it helped other people to see that like, it's okay to not accept certain parts of yourself, but as long as you can um, continue to be open about it and connect with others who might feel the same way, that's really the best best thing to do. And I think finding the community um, at the conference who had alopecia was a really big piece of coming to 
feel confident in who I was, like just meeting other people who had the same experience as me, because it can be such an isolating um, thing to experience in your life when you don't look like anyone else really that you know, and growing up as a kid and always feeling really different from other kids. Um, So finding a community that understood was a huge piece of that. And then these days I feel, especially in the last year, I've just gotten a lot more relaxed about going out without my wig. I feel like I wear my wig maybe like 50% of the time and just have come to realize that it's, everyone has like your appearance is something that you can control in a lot of ways. Like you can choose to wear certain clothes, you can choose to wear makeup, you can choose to wear a wig. It doesn't have to be something that, um, that is like this set in stone thing. There's a lot of ways to express yourself through your appearance. And I think that's been something that I found really is really fun with alopecia is if I want to go without a wig, I can like put together a look that I feel really confident with without hair. But if I want to wear like a crazy wig one day, then that's really fun too. And I can like put makeup over my face to make it look like I don't have any eyebrows or I can like do big eyebrows. And so I think I've just realized that I think for most of my life, I put so much weight in my appearance and this like physical difference that I have. And just realizing that your appearance is such a small part of you and it can be used as a way to express yourself and to connect with others, um, but it doesn't define you. I think that's been my biggest lesson in the last year. Well, I commend you for everything that you've done in that area. Thanks. I think that's so cool and so brave. Do you hear from people when you're out on tour, you know, who come up to you and they've heard this side of your story and it's something that's empowered them to, you know, feel better about where, where they're at with it? Yeah, I actually have a lot of people with alopecia who come to my shows. This last tour I did, um, someone messaged me afterwards and they were like, my wife has alopecia. And when we were in standing in line for your show, we overheard someone else saying they had alopecia. And so we connected with them. And then there's this, there is this girl um, who's in, I think she's in high school and she comes to a lot of my shows. I got to see her on my last tour, which was really fun. So it's been nice as I've talked more publicly about it. I feel like I meet people with alopecia at shows a lot more often Yeah. Um, in recent years. Well, I, I think that lesson of, you know, the, the quickest way to understand and accept other people is to understand and accept yourself. And there are a lot of different yeah. roads that help us arrive at that. And, you know, the, the empowering element of hearing from other people who struggle with or deal with the same things that we do, you know, pe- people like you who have been brave enough to step out. I mean, that's really huge, Molly. That's really awesome. Thanks. Thank you. So do you think you'll go back to the conference in years to come? Like how how much more involvement do you think you'll have with that? Yeah, I was supposed to speak at the conference last year. Every year they have like a closing speaker who kind of gives the final words of the conference. So I was going to do that in 2020 and then it got canceled and then it got canceled again this year. So (laughs) I'm going to, we're doing like a virtual thing and then hopefully next year I'll get to speak. And I always do something around um, Alopecia Awareness Month, which is September. So I'm thinking about doing like a concert or a video to kind of help raise awareness and also raise money for the foundation. Um, And that's just been a really big part of my journey with alopecia, I guess, is 
connecting with that group and through that making so many friends who have alopecia and seeing all these people who are thriving and accepting themselves and really celebrating their differences. Yeah. Well, making great art as an artist is awesome and inspiring, but doing good with your platform, you know, that that's where I think the artists who inspire me most are, you know, moving into that area and just figuring out, and there's a lot of different forms that it can take on, but my hat mm-hmm. is off, my hat is off to you, and I definitely <laughs> I definitely think that you should all go. Like I said, read the piece that that Molly wrote on her website. It's it's beautiful and it's inspiring, and it's been really great catching up with you today, Molly. I'm I'm excited to have some. Uh, you too. Thanks for having me. Some new music in my <laughs> repertoire to listen to, and we're gonna see each other at Blue Ox which I saw on your schedule. Yeah, that's going to be so much fun. Yeah, so yeah, you got awesome. you got to get up and play a tune with the string dusters at Blue Ox. Official I would invite. love to. Yeah, <laughs> count me in. Awesome. Well, thank <laughs> you thank you so much for joining me today and best of luck with everything thank you. and I hope to see you sooner rather than later. You too. All right, thanks Molly. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Huge thanks, as always, to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me get the podcast out there and to our sponsor this season, EMG Pickups. Huge thanks, of course, to my amazing guest today, Molly Tuttle. Go check out her new EP, but I'd rather be with you too. And we will be back here in two weeks with a really cool episode that was recorded live at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival with the amazing Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers. If you dig what you're hearing, head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a review. It really helps a ton. Can't thank you enough for tuning in to Inside the Musician's Brain. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, 
to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.